16. We're going to be continuing in our study in the book of Acts. We're, we're walking through the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts, I think, for close to eight months or something like that. Uh, it's been a great time seeing how the, the, the Holy Spirit is working as, as God just is, His plans are unhindered and, and Jesus is working to expand His church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and it's been a, a neat study to go through that and to see how God is at work in the church. And I know this morning, I am very glad to see that God is at work in our church. God's at work in our church in so very many ways, and I'm excited to be able to be together with you. Um, I don't count it, um, I, I count it as a privilege to be able to be here. I don't take it for granted. Um, what a wonderful time it is to fellowship with God's people in worship and in song and in hearing His Word. Let's turn your Bibles to Acts 18. We'll be taking a larger passage of Scripture from verse 18 of 18 all the way down to verse 20 of chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have it up on the screen for you. And I encourage you to follow along with me as I read God's holy inspired word. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch, and after spending time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples." Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately, and when he wished... To cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, persuading and reasoning with them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued to unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that, that touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the light of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word, word, which, which illumines our minds, which opens up our eyes. Lord, thank you for your word that makes us alive. God, thank you that as we come to know Jesus, you give us new life. And thank you that, that the, through the Holy Spirit, you empower us and enable us to live for you. God, I pray this morning that you would enable all of us to hear your word from you. God, I pray that you would anoint the words as I speak, Lord, and, and, and give grace to all who hear. God, we are desperately in need of, of seeing you, of knowing you, and of, of being made alive in you. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you know the story of a man named John Wesley, he was a famous evangelist, lived a couple hundred years ago. He was born into a Christian home. He had been raised by some very godly parents. He'd been raised by his father Samuel, who was a clergyman, and his mother Susanna, who was unusually godly. She was devout. She was a wonderful mother by all accounts. He'd heard the good news about Jesus as a young man. He had he had grown up in the church. He'd been taught well. He was a very eloquent speaker. He was well-educated. He, he ended up attending Christ Church College in Oxford at the time. It was probably the best or most preeminent Christian school of learning. And when his time at Oxford at Christ Church, um, he, along with his brother and some friends, they formed a club called the Holy Club. Um, these, these guys were so interested in, in living their lives, holy lives before God and, and being devout. So they formed this holy club and they got mocked and called the Methodists. And actually, Wesley ended up to go on to found a group called the Methodists. John Wesley, though, um, he experienced doubts. So he thought, maybe, maybe when I get ordained, maybe when I go and I become a missionary, that will help. And so he got ordained after Christ Church. And then he went on a trip to the Americas, to Georgia, actually not just a few hours from here, to be a missionary to the Native Americans there. He spent some time there, but felt like he was a failure. And on the way back, he met some, some people, some Moravians, and they, they seemed to have a passion for Jesus that was different than what he had. And it was something that he longed for and wanted himself. And he was, he was, he was looking, for, looking for a real relationship. He was really looking to know Jesus because he knew everything about Jesus, but yet he didn't have a personal passion for Christ. He had a passion for the things of Christ, a passion for holiness, a passion for devout living, for, for living the Christian life, but not knowing Jesus. So one night, 
After he came back, he was despondent. He went to a meeting house in London where they were preaching, and he writes in his journal. He says, In the evening I went, very unwillingly, to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. You see, after Wesley had come back from the Americas, um, he wrote earlier in his journal, he says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He had grown up in the church. He was knowledgeable about Jesus, and yet he didn't have a personal life in Jesus. He didn't experience the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and yet God in his mercy, after he'd already been a pastor, after he'd already been a missionary, God in his mercy revealed himself to him, and he, and he knew Christ personally. In, in our passage today, we're going to discover three kinds of people. The, the good Dr. Luke is going to lay out a, a picture of three different kinds of people, three vignettes, if you will. People, kinds of people who appear to know Jesus at first, but who do not know him personally and don't have a life in the Holy Spirit. Luke's a master storyteller, but he's a storyteller with intent. And the main idea that we're going to focus on today is really a big picture that Luke's account shows us. And it's, it's this main idea, it's that knowing Jesus and having new life in the Spirit, knowing Jesus and having life in the Spirit are absolutely necessary. It's not enough just to have knowledge about Jesus. It's not enough to follow Jesus even in some ways and to look like a Christian on the outside. It's not enough to use the name of Jesus. You see, knowing Jesus personally and having new life in the Spirit are absolutely critical. They're absolutely necessary. You know, Luke is masterful in the way he teaches, and we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been seeing that although Acts is a history, it's, it's really a narrative, it's a story, it's, it's, a, it's a story that Luke tells using history. He tells us a true account of things that happened, but he's weaving tales together to make theological points, to, to show us things about what it looks like to live the Christian life, to show us how God expands His church, and, and, and how the Holy Spirit's at work, and how we're to respond to Him and live in the church. And if you've ever been to see a great play, you know that often playwrights, they don't just tell you the point of their plays. Instead, they paint pictures. They show stories of that. And that's what, really what Luke is doing here for us. And he's, he's giving us these, these three accounts, these three vignettes, like a great playwright. And he's setting the stage, and he unfolds the play. He shows us different characters. And then he lets us think about the implications. But unlike a playwright, Luke's writing a historical account through the Holy Spirit, and he's carefully selecting these pictures to show us what does, what does it look like to live for Jesus? What does it look like to be born again? What does it look like to live for Him? What does it look like to know Jesus and live by the Spirit? And so in the first few verses of our passage, we're not going to spend much time there. Luke, he sets the, the stage. Last we saw Paul, he was finishing up his mission in Corinth. He was setting sail for Syria. Now, in the first few verses of, of this passage, he is making a stopover in Ephesus. He actually took Priscilla and Aquila with him from Corinth, and he left them there to do the work of ministry. And then Paul, he proceeds to go on. He's headed to Jerusalem. He made a vow, most likely. It, it, it involved um, 
cutting the hair off to, 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 to thank God and to make a sacrifice. And so Paul's wanting to go back to Jerusalem and make a sacrifice there. And so Luke's setting up the stage. But what he's doing all that for is to show us what happened. Luke was just in Ephesus, and then he's coming back. And so Luke's setting up the stage for us so we can see these three different pictures. And so we know that Paul, he goes back to Jerusalem, then to Antioch for a while. That's actually a couple of years, probably. And Luke skims through that because that's not the main idea for him. But he shows us earlier that, that Paul desired to come back if the Lord wills, and that was his plan, his intent to come back. And so we see here at the end of Paul's second missionary journey and, and what's sometimes called his third missionary journey, but really he ends up spending a couple years in Ephesus. So Ephesus was the goal of this missionary journey when he's coming back from spending time in Antioch. And Luke gives us these three Different short accounts of people that all demonstrate the need for knowing Jesus and having life in the Spirit. The need for knowing Jesus and having life in the Spirit. And as we're going through this, I want us to to see, do do we know Jesus? Do we have life in the Spirit? Because I think that's the intent of the passage, the intent that, that that, that the Holy Spirit has for us. And the first, really, account that Luke shows us is that of Apollos. And it really illustrates something for us. And it's, it illustrates how it's possible to know about Jesus but not have life in Jesus. That's the, the, the idea of the first vignette that he shows us. It's, it's possible to know about Jesus but not have life in Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know you can know a lot about Jesus? You can be well-instructed, well-informed, well-educated. You can even be an eloquent teacher. Think of John Wesley. But not have life in Jesus. And so... Paul says, Apollos, he came from Alexandria. We're not sure why he came to Ephesus, but he goes from Alexandria to, to Ephesus. Alexandria was his, a major city in northwest Egypt. It was the center of Hellenistic thought. It housed the world's largest library at the time. It was also the place where the Septuagint was composed and the great Philo taught. It was a learned city, and so it's no surprise that when Apollos comes to Ephesus, he's a very learned man, and he's skilled in the art of rhetoric, which is communicating his education through um, skillful speech. And so it's no surprise, the New American Standard actually translated, he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was mighty in the Scriptures, and wouldn't that be something that all of us would like to be said of us? I know for me, I would love to be at the place where I can say, yes, I feel like I'm mighty in the Scriptures. And for all of us, it's a good desire to be mighty in the Scriptures, and, and Apollos was that sort of guy. He was an all-around impressive man. He was impressive in many respects. He wasn't just educated. He was, he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was eloquent. He's able to refute and to debate with um, the most versed people of, in, in, in relation to the law in the Old Testament. And it's likely that he might have even been a better public speaker than the Apostle Paul. And Paul actually said that in some of his letters to the Corinthians. And he, he refers to how the Corinthians viewed Paul as being weak in speech. And so some were preferring Apollos to him. And yet Paul ends up working with Apollos later on in the book of Acts as well. But if you look in verse 25, it says he's been instructed or well taught in the way of the Lord. Apollos was this all-around admirable, godly man, and he was zealous for the things of God. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't faking it. He was really learned. He was really zealous for the things of God. He wanted to follow God. But the problem was he didn't know Jesus personally. You see, look down your Bibles. It tells us very specifically, Luke writes, he says, that he knew only the baptism of John. 
How can that be? Can you have a very godly man who's following after the Lord, who's well instructed in the ways of the Lord, he's even teaching about Jesus. Yet he knew only the baptism of John. And later on in, in chapter 19, we're going to see in just a few moments that the baptism of John is not sufficient. We need to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean water baptism. It means that we need to receive Jesus and then respond to Him. And we need to receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized in the Holy Spirit and made alive. And the baptism of John here, as Luke writes, it's not sufficient. Boy, that, that gives the reader pause. I know when I first read this account, I was reading through, boy, Paulus is a man. He's a, he's a stud. He's a great guy. And yet, wait a minute. He's, he's only been baptized in the baptism of John? It's meant to surprise the reader and give pause. After all, Paulus knows God's Word. He's preaching fervently about God and Jesus, the coming Messiah, but he doesn't know Jesus personally, doesn't know life in Christ. Maybe he was in Alexandria when the events concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus occurred. He, maybe he only heard about John. That news only traveled to him. and So he heard about that Jesus was the Messiah but did not yet know the details. We don't know for sure how he only knew the baptism of John. But Luke's going to show that it means that a person's not a Christian. So I believe Apollos, he's not a believer here. And that's astounding. You can know a lot about God. You can actually be a godly person and your desire to be after God and yet not have placed your faith in Jesus Christ personally. And that's true for a lot of people in different religions. People say, well, there's many ways to God. Well, no, there aren't. There's only one way and that's through Jesus Christ. You can be fervent, you can be passionate, you can know a lot of scriptures and yet be far from God. Apollos, he was also a transitional figure. He's from an Old Testament Jew who would have placed their faith in the Messiah to one who believed in Jesus, but he hadn't understood who Jesus was fully. He was a disciple of John the Baptist and he was fervently speaking and teaching about the coming Messiah who's Jesus, but he didn't correctly understand who Jesus was personally. And so you see a picture of him in the synagogue, and he's, he's telling all the other Jews to look to Jesus as the Messiah, but for all his eloquence and boldness, he didn't get it quite right. And how do we know that? Because Priscilla and Aquila, and by the way, it, it's interesting, in, in Scripture, whenever it mentions someone first, it's, it's often because it wants to give honor to that person. So here, it actually lists Priscilla first, so she was instrumental in instructing this great teacher of God's law. And, and just as an aside, um, ladies, please uh, know that your place in the church is valuable, and that you can, can bring God's Word to bear on other people's lives, and you have a part to play the significant. And so we see both Priscilla and Aquila playing a significant part. They, they take Apollos aside. They pull him back, and they, they say, you know, you, you don't quite have all the, the story here. You, you don't see everything accurately. See, it's possible to know all about the Bible, to know all about Jesus, but not Know Him personally, not place your faith in Him for life. So Luke's showing us that knowledge, no matter how good, it's not enough. When I look back on my own Christian walk, I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I knew a lot about the Bible. I read my Bible every day. I knew about Jesus. I, I believed in Jesus. I, I tried to be godly. I'm not, but I'm not sure exactly when I became a Christian. Because I'm not exactly sure, when did I really place my faith, my trust in Jesus? Not because it was the right thing to do, or because I should, or because everybody around me was doing it, but because I knew I needed Him. And I knew that 
I couldn't live without him. And that I was guilty before God for all of my even private internal sins. You know, one of the, one of the difficulties of growing up in a Christian home is that you begin to think that you're not really sinful. You know, on the outside, I wasn't really aware because I wasn't doing anything sinful externally when I was younger as a kid. Sure, I, I was, I'd get in arguments with my, my siblings, but I didn't think that was a big deal. But I didn't realize that inside, anytime I was fearing what other people thought, I was sinning against God. Anytime I was lying or um, any time I was not honoring God, I, I was sinning against Him and I, I needed His salvation. I needed to be rescued from His wrath. It's possible to have knowledge about God without having a relationship with Him. How about you? Do you know if you placed your faith, your trust in God? If you have, have you, have you done it because you're supposed to, it's because it's the right thing to do, it's because that's what you're taught about, or because that's the response you're supposed to give? Or have you placed your faith in Jesus because you know that you need Him for every day? Don't just be well-intentioned and well-taught and assume you know Jesus personally. Uh, for the young people in the church, that's, that's to you specifically. I can relate. Don't just assume you know Jesus because you know a lot about Him. In the case of Paulus, God had Priscilla and Aquila. They gently take him aside. They don't mock him. They don't publicly correct him. That's something important to note as well. When we're bringing correction, when we see somebody who doesn't have adequate understanding of scriptures, you don't just publicly say, no, you're wrong. You're a moron. You know, it's not what they're doing in the synagogue. They could have done that. Instead, they pulled him aside. Maybe they had him over for dinner and said, let's help you understand the way of God more accurately here. We all of us can learn from their character in doing that. It says they took him and they explained in the way of God more accurately they're gently, instru- gently instructing and, and giving education to him. But when Apollos knew who Jesus really was, who he'd been teaching about already, it made him even more effective for ministry. But it was necessary for him to know Jesus first. Look down at verse 27. We can see the effects of, of Apollos after conversion. Um, when he was taken aside, he understood the way of Jesus more accurately. Look, look in verse 27. It says, When he arrived, speaking of he went to Corinth, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The effect of his knowing Jesus only deepened his abilities. It only enhanced his abilities. And he was a great help to those who believed, and he was able to powerfully refute the Jews in public. Now that he experienced this new life in Jesus, and he was, he was filled with the Spirit, he was able to, to be a great help to them. Just like John Wesley, after his conversion... He began what is now today called the Great Awakening in England. And, and thousands and thousands of people came to a personal knowledge of Jesus through this man who for many years did not know Jesus, just knew about him, and yet was transformed when he encountered Jesus personally and it had new life in him. Well, the second vignette that we're going to look at is in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19. We see People who are religious, but they don't know Jesus personally. They seem to be followers of Jesus. They seem to be disciples, but they don't know Jesus personally or understand their need for the Holy Spirit. So the second story, it illustrates that it's possible to seem to be a disciple, but not have life in Jesus. It's possible to seem to be a disciple, but not have life in Jesus. So not only can you know a lot about Jesus, but not have life in Jesus, you can seem to be a disciple, but not have life in Jesus. Well, Apollos is in Corinth. Paul arrives in Ephesus and he finds some that appear to be disciples. 
but he comes somehow to find out that they're only superficially disciples, and so he must have noticed a difference from something they either did or said, because he asked them a question, look down your Bibles, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He must have noticed something was missing in their passion, something was missing in their life as a disciple, and so he's, did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What's going on? There's something missing. Now, Paul's not talking about a two-step conversion where you become a Christian and receive the Holy Spirit later. What he's saying is, did, you, you say you're disciples, you, but did you really receive the Spirit? And so he, he knew something was off. They were religious. They were living like disciples, but they lacked the Holy Spirit. They hadn't placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul asked them, they, they gave a, a very odd answer. He says, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Now, they don't mean that they haven't heard that the Holy Spirit exists, because if they were disciples, if they were followers of John, they'd been baptized in John, they clearly would have known that there was a Holy Spirit, but in the way they phrase it, what they mean is that we don't realize that the Holy Spirit has come, that He is here. We didn't even know that the Holy Spirit was here, that He was come, that He was available. And without the Holy Spirit, they've not received new life in Christ, even though they may have been followers of Jesus, or at least of John the Baptist. They were seeking to do what was right. They had repented. You know, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, is what Paul tells them. They're still waiting, though, for the Messiah to come, but they hadn't personally placed their faith in Jesus. They hadn't received the promised Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one, though, who makes people alive in Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes and fills everyone who places their trust in Jesus And everybody who places their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is so immersed with the presence and and power of the Holy Spirit that it's it's referenced to being baptized in the Holy Spirit, to being filled with the Holy Spirit. But Paul's perplexed that these men who call themselves disciples, they haven't even heard that the Holy Spirit was available, and so he asks incredulously, incredulously, he says, well, if you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, then into what then were you baptized? In, In what... What were you baptized into then? If you're calling yourself disciples, you're saying you've experienced baptism, what were you baptized into? And they answered, if you look down your Bible, it says into John's baptism. And so these disciples who at first appeared to be Christians, they'd only experienced the baptism of John. They weren't truly disciples of Jesus. They hadn't received the Spirit. They didn't have new life through faith in Jesus Christ. But that's what they really need. And that's what Paul tells them about in verse 4. And Luke's using shorthand here, and, and often when Luke gives accounts in Acts, it's, he uses shorthand to, to describe a longer scene. And so look down your Bibles in verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with a, baptize of, with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Paul was giving, him, giving them the good news about Jesus Christ. And saying that this baptism that that John had, it was looking forward to the Messiah. And the Messiah, he's Jesus, and here's who Jesus is. And so we see that they responded to that message about Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus. And so verse 5 tells us on hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, they respond, they receive new life, and they're baptized. In the same time, when they were born again, they were baptized into Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. They receive what they needed most because God gives the Holy Spirit generously to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's good news for you and me. When, when we 
are experiencing doubts and unbelief, we need to look back and say, God, thank you that I place my faith, my trust in Jesus, and I know that I have your Spirit. Fill me anew with your Holy Spirit. And God is willing to pour out His Spirit on all those who place their faith in Jesus. So then Luke writes, if you look down your Bibles again, it says that they experienced this kind of miniature Pentecost themselves. And Luke writes, when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. What is this? Well, they received the power of the Holy Spirit and they received this clear sign, this clear indication that they were complete in Christ. They, they received this sign that they were immediately different. They were changed and God gave them immediate evidence of their new life. And it testified to the legitimacy of their salvation. And this was important so that they could see that just like the Jewish believers in Acts 2, they received the same Holy Spirit and they believed in the same Jesus and they had the same life. And for us today, all who place your faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the same powerful Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And because they were Gentiles living in a foreign land, it didn't mean that they were a different kind of Christian. Just because this, this account happened probably 20 years after the original Pentecost, it didn't mean the Spirit had stopped working. Just because they weren't the first generation of Christians in Israel didn't mean they no longer needed the power of the Holy Spirit or they shouldn't expect the Holy Spirit to work. They needed and they received the Holy Spirit and the same empowering that all who believe in Jesus receive. Now, it looked differently for them than it might look for you and for me. Not everyone's going to have the same response, but everyone receives the same powerful Spirit. And that's what was being affirmed here. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Spirit ever since the first account that we see in the book of Acts in Pentecost. And the testimony, though, shows us that it's possible to call yourself a disciple but not have the Holy Spirit And yet God mercifully gives His Spirit to all who place their faith in Him. So all disciples should ask themselves, do I I bear evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Some some potential questions you might want to ask yourself is, do I desire to pray? Do Do I have a desire to hear God speaking to me through His Word? Now don't be condemned if you're not praying regularly, not reading His Word regularly. I'm not asking him. I'm saying, do you have a desire to pray? Do you desire to commune with God? And to hear from Him. Do you desire to hear from God in His Word? When you open up His Word, do you, do you hear God speaking? I'm not every time, because not every day you might read His Word and you, and you might not have those feelings, but, but do you hear God speaking through His Word? Are you aware of the Holy Spirit regularly at work in your life? Do you experience both conviction from the Holy Spirit and yet also at times assurance that you're a child of God? Because that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings both of those things. He convicts. He encourages. He gives us assurance that, that we're children of God. Well, next, Luke gives us some details about how Paul taught in the synagogue for three months until some began to speak against the way. And so he leaves from the synagogue, which is a normal pattern. When he began to experience persecution in the synagogue. He would, he would take the message elsewhere. And he goes and he probably rents this hall from uh, the hall of Tyrannus is what it's called, which is kind of comical because it means the hall of the tyrant. So I don't know who taught there, but um, they got one heck of a nickname from their students. This was the hall of the tyrant. This was the lecture hall of where the tyrant taught. 
And so Paul taught like this there for two years faithfully. And, and, and think about that. In, in, in other manuscripts, um, it's probably, they probably weren't in the original text, but the other manuscripts have a note there that he taught from the hours of one to four. And, and it's interesting that they note that because that would have been the hours typically that things would have shut down. You know, they would have worked early in the morning, the heat of day, things would have shut down. They work later on in the evening. So Paul, he probably was working as a tent maker in the morning. He was lecturing for four hours in, in the afternoon, three, four hours in the afternoon. And then he was going back to work afterwards. And he was faithfully proclaiming God's Word. And it spread so widely, it says, look down your Bibles, that all the residents of Asia heard the Word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And Paul was experiencing the, the incredible empowering of the Holy Spirit to do this. You know, before we think that, you know, wait a minute, I, I, I can't ever be like that. That was unusual. Well, yes, that's true. I don't expect us to be like Paul in that. I don't expect us to have the unique empowering that, that Paul had as an apostle of Jesus Christ. All the apostles have passed away, but we do have the same Holy Spirit that Paul had. And we see here, and I think it's meant to give us faith in the Holy Spirit and His work, in verses 11 and 12, that, that the Holy Spirit was doing powerful signs and wonders through Paul. So look down your Bibles in verse 11 and 12. It says, And God was doing extraordinary, that word could also be very unusual, He was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched His skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. They were extraordinary miracles. They weren't typical. They weren't the type of miracles even commonly seen amongst the apostles. Not all the apostles had that kind of work. I think Peter is the only one similar, maybe. We've seen that when Peter passed by them, his shadow fell on people and people were healed. And this isn't a teaching for us to go and get handkerchiefs and aprons and put them on people to heal them. And if you come up afterwards with a handkerchief, I'll turn you away. I'll pray for you, but don't put your handkerchief on me and carry it away to somebody else. I, I don't think that, that God's working normatively that way. Luke, even the way he writes, it's, it's, it's unusual miracle, yet... God was demonstrating His great power through the Holy Spirit. And also, I think it's to give us encouragement, He still works. This was probably around 57 A.D. or so. And yet the Holy Spirit was still working powerfully in and through the church. And I know for us today, I'm, I'm still anticipating the Holy Spirit to work in and through this church. I'm still anticipating Him to work powerfully in the lives of all the believers here, my life and your lives. And, I'm, and I look to Him to heal still. And so when somebody asks for prayer, yeah, we, we pray for them. We anoint them with oil and we, we pray in faith. Because God says that the prayer of faith, He'll honor and He'll, he'll heal. So anyway, people are coming up to Paul. They're touching handkerchiefs to Him, probably while He's working and these, these handkerchiefs is another word for kind of a sweat rag. They put around their heads to, to kind of catch the sweat. Paul is working there. They're taking his sweat rags. They're carrying them over other people. He must have first thought that was kind of strange. I'm not sure what he thought to begin with. And then he realized, oh my goodness, God's working. You know, just like the way that, that God worked through Jesus when the, the woman who had this, this, this internal bleeding for 12 years, she just touches the hem of Jesus' garment in faith. And so really it's, it's God working through the faith that people have in him. It's not some superstitious touching garments that heals. But people were being healed and getting, and getting rid of demons as they placed their faith in Jesus that Paul preached about. And God manifested himself in this really uncommon way so that people would listen to the message of Paul and that people would place their faith in Jesus and 
praise his name. And I think maybe God granted these unusual miracles to Paul as well because of the city he was in. You see, Paul was in Ephesus. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, behind Rome and Alexandria. Then there was Ephesus. And Ephesus housed one of the seven wonders of the world in that day. It, the seven, I think it was number four, and it was um, the temple to Artemis or Diana. It was this magnificent structure that people from all over the world would come and visit that was written about in the annals of history. And this massive temple of Artemis brought a lot of business because it was one of the wonders of the world. It was like having your church right next door to the Grand Canyon. You get a lot of visitors. And, and many people, though, they claimed power through this false goddess Artemis or Diana. And they, they worshipped false gods in that city. And there was a lot of magicians in Ephesus. There was a lot of people practicing sorcery because of that. This, this cult of religion around Artemis was humongous. And people did a lot of business making idols, and they would sell these idols. And we'll see that in in the latter half of the chapter next week. And many would have claimed power through their false gods, but, but God was demonstrating through these miracles through Paul that He alone is powerful and that the name of Jesus is exalted over all so called gods. It says that the name of Jesus was extolled or shown to be greater than all others. And then Luke sees, we can see that he gives us a third vignette, a third short account of yet another type of person that, that demonstrates the need for genuine new life in Christ, for knowing Jesus and receiving the Spirit. And so this third story that he shows us in verses 13 to 16, he illustrates that it's possible to use Jesus but not have life in Jesus. It's possible not only to know about Jesus, it's possible to be, seem to be a follower of Jesus, but it's also t- possible to use Jesus or to attempt to use Jesus, but not have life in him. Look in your Bibles. Luke tells this story. It would almost be comical if it wasn't true or if it didn't happen to you. Um, look down your Bibles in verse 13. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you and I command you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? This is just one evil spirit, by the way, and one man. It says, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. These seven men got some surprise when they tried to use Jesus for their own benefit. What's Luke showing us in this story? He's showing us faking it doesn't cut it. He's showing us to just trying to use Jesus for your own cause. It ends badly. Showing us pretending to know Jesus or claiming to know Jesus or even using the name of Jesus. It's not enough, and even the demons know that. They were sons of a Jewish high priest, so they likely understood the Old Testament and understood the Scriptures, or at least they were around religion enough. But here we see they went around from place to place. They were itinerants. They probably got paid for going and trying to exercise people. They would have um, a certain uh, secret words that they would say to try to cast out demons. Now, now maybe some demons left um, in, in the presence of them reading Scripture. We're not sure if they were effective in other times or not. Where maybe they just pretended, have you ever seen one of those shows on TV about these people who supposedly go into homes and they, they get rid of the demons there and, and, and all of it's a complete sham. 
So maybe they were like that, making their money off of duping people who were gullible. But they, they see that there's a real power in Paul. They see there's a real power in the name of Jesus. They see that Jesus is really healing people through Paul. And he's giving life, and the signs and wonders and miracles are happening, and people are changing. And so they hear about Jesus, and they try to use his name. Maybe they had heard about Jesus through Paul directly, or maybe they had heard about demons being cast out. We don't know, but maybe these were the kind of men that Paul had in mind when he warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 15. He said to avoid people having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. These men had the appearance of of godliness. They were the sons of a priest. They were using all the right incantations and words. They were even saying the name of Jesus, you know, and I think in the South it's common to have somebody pray before a meal or even to use the name of Jesus or even say, yeah, I know all about Jesus. And yet, really, we're just using Jesus to make ourselves feel better. You know, somebody can make, make use of the name of Jesus and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I place my faith in Jesus. Yes, I know him, but yet then not live for him at all. And so what are they doing, really? They're just using Jesus like a talisman to save them from hell, but not really placing their faith in him. And that's not how Jesus relates to us. He won't be used by us. They were selfish men. They were seeking to use Jesus for their own gain to get money or notoriety. They wanted to use the name of Jesus, but they denied the real power of life in Jesus. They hadn't humbled themselves and said, we're going we're to submit ourselves to this Jesus that Paul preaches about, and we're going to believe and place our faith and hope in him. And so it's really a warning passage. Anybody who's trying to use Jesus for their own gain and isn't interested in knowing Jesus personally, and, and that might be seen in how they live their lives. And so the seven sons of Sceva said they adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. And the evil spirits didn't recognize these men and they saw them for the imposters that they were. And they knew that these men were not sons of God in Jesus. They didn't have the Holy Spirit and the evil spirit knew that. They hadn't been granted the authority that Jesus does grant to his true disciples to, to cast out demons in his name. They were just trying to use Jesus in a magical way. You know, sometimes I wonder if we pray that way too. You know, we just try to use Jesus in a magical way. Um, getting God just to, to answer our prayers because we use the name of Jesus superficially and not actually placing our faith and trust in him no matter what the outcome. And so this demon, he gives this man supernatural strength. This is one man and one demon. They have amazing supernatural strength and this man whipped up on them badly. He was able to overpower and strip all seven of these men naked to embarrass them, and he beat them badly and sends them out bleeding and teach them a lesson all through the able of one demon. And then I was thinking about that, and that if, if one demon had that kind of power, wonder what a legion of demons might have had. But when we encounter Jesus, he's going across the Sea of Galilee, and, and he meets a, a garrison demoniac and this man, and he encounters him, and he says, come out from evil spirits, and and, and the man responds, what have you to do with us, son of the most high God? What, what have you to do with us? And so Jesus dialogues with his demon and says, we are legion, for we are many. And by the way, a legion back in that day would have been somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 men is what a Roman legion would have been. And so this would have been some extreme power that Jesus encountered. It says that all people were afraid to go near the tombs where this garrison demoniac lived because um, chains were placed on him. He broke the chains. Now, I've never seen anybody break chains. 
can imagine what was going on when Jesus encountered this, and yet what we see in, in, in Jesus himself is true power. So Jesus speaks, and, and the demons have to leave. The Gerasene demoniac, this man who had shackles, he could break through any shackle, break through any chains, nobody was able to subdue him. That's a stark contrast to these seven men who tried to use Jesus. But such is the real power of Jesus that he can cast out legion of demons. And he delegates that to all who place their faith in him. He gives the power to cast out demons as well. But the sons of Sceva knew nothing of the true power of Jesus Christ, and they knew nothing of new life in Jesus. The Holy Spirit was necessary. They needed Jesus. They needed new life in Him, but they didn't really believe in Him. In verse 17, though, it says that God used this this very bizarre incident to extol the name of Jesus so that everybody everywhere um, says great fear came upon them. Fear fell upon them all. Look down at verse 17. In the name, here's the result. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You would have thought, oh, great fear fell upon them. So people thought, oh, oh maybe this name of Jesus isn't powerful. No, that's not it at all. People saw through that. They saw that the demons knew Jesus, but Jesus wasn't to be trivialized. He wasn't to be used. And so the whole area extols the name of Jesus and sees that the demons are in submission to him, but you can't play around. You don't play around with Jesus. And so it says the whole, all the area, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Everyone was able to connect up with the fact that Paul cast out demons without him being there through the power of Jesus who he proclaimed. And as a result, not only was the name of Jesus extolled, many became believers in Jesus. And this new life that they had resulted in power to live for Jesus. And that's the the fourth thing that we're going to see. The final thing that we're going to see here is Luke doesn't just paint pictures of of people who knew about Jesus but did not know him. Now he gives us a fourth picture about people who know Jesus and how Jesus brings life in the Spirit and power to live for him to all who know him. Jesus brings life in the Spirit and power to live for him to all who know him. His power to live for Jesus, it was was seen in Apollos and how Apollos was a great help and he powerfully refuted the Jews demonstrating from the Scriptures that the Messiah was Jesus. Power to live for Jesus was seen in these, uh, those who were apparent disciples to begin with. Once they were converted, they began to speak in tongues and they prophesied. You can see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. And that's meant to give us hope to see that Jesus brings life in the Spirit and power to live for Him. Then look down your Bibles in verse 18. It says, Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You see, this genuine faith, this dependent belief in Jesus, it resulted in the confession of sin and the divulging of their practices. It resulted in a changed life. There used to be a a show on TV called Magic's Biggest Secrets Revealed. I think it was about five or six years ago. This is a guy in a goofy mask that used to do it. But there was a scandal surrounding the show that it was exposing some of the biggest tricks of the magicians at the time. Um, People like Copperfield and and all kinds of other guys. And it demystified these tricks and it it made it so that the attendance in some magician shows was beginning to to falter. And people weren't as impressed with them. 
but it didn't just demystify them. It took away any illusion that the, the magicians had any real power at all. There wasn't anything spectacular about the magic tricks. In, in Paul's day, it was even more so. There wasn't TV, but yet magicians in that day, they would have thrived through secrecy. By keeping their tricks close, they would have thrived by keeping everything, all their practices to themselves. The key to their magic was secrecy and mystery. And at that time, it was believed that they had special spells that they would, they would say. But if you, if you said a spell publicly or explained it, it supposedly would make it impotent. And so it's important to see here that these new believers who were immersed in this cultic religion of Artemis, they were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and they were trusting in Jesus and they were divulging their practices. That was a big deal. They were divulging their practices, but it didn't stop there. They confessed their sins. They confessed the areas that they they needed God. And that's one of the effects of the Holy Spirit at work in your life is to bring conviction, to bring change, to bring response to Him. And for those who practice their guidance through evil spirits or sorcerers or fortune tellers, they were empowered by the Spirit to give up their old life and their old practices to live for Jesus. And it cost them dearly. I want you to look down in your Bibles and see that. Luke writes, it says, they counted the value of them, and he's speaking of, of their magic books, the books the, that they brought forward to be burned. It says, they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, at that time, a piece of silver would have been probably at least a day's wage for an average worker. And if you calculated maybe an average worker, I don't know, $45,000 a year or something on the conservative side, it would have been a figure that would today would have equated to well over $6.5 million. That is pretty funny. It's okay to laugh. I love kids in the service. It's wonderful. So they count the, the value up of, of these books, and it, the value came up to 50,000 pieces of silver, over, over, well over $6 million today. So instead of selling these things, why is it significant? Instead of selling them, they sacrificed them. Instead of making money off of their old way of life, they voluntarily gave them up. They renounced their former lifestyle publicly. And this was a great cost to themselves, and they left their old ways behind, and That's the effect of truly responding to the gospel of Jesus and placing your faith in Him for life. The Holy Spirit enables you to leave your old life behind. Even at great cost, He enables you to live for Him. And the result of living for Jesus publicly like this, it would have been powerful, it would have been difficult. What's the result of living for Jesus today? It's difficult at times, it's costly. There will be a cost. Maybe it'll be a financial cost like this because your priorities in life need to be changed. Maybe you need to reorient yourself. These people were already disciples and yet as they saw that happen to the sons of Sceva, as they saw God at work, they realized we need to respond. Maybe we need to respond to Him today and say, God, what am I living for? Am I, am I living for You? What do I need to give up? I want to put You first. I want to live for You above all else. I don't want to still be stuck in my old ways. Maybe there's some things that God would have you give up, some ways that He would have you change. Maybe that change looks like it's financial. Maybe it looks like giving up a job. That's not a good influence. Maybe it it looks like giving up your past or your friends that aren't good influences on you. 
Maybe it, it looks like making a sacrifice and saying, I don't want to be tempted by these old ways anymore, and I want to I be different, so I'm going to live a life that's different. Maybe it means not going to bars and hanging out there anymore because it's too much temptation for you. Maybe it means unplugging your computer because you can't handle the temptation for pornography. Whatever it is, there, there's a cost to following Jesus. And so they come and they, they place their faith in Jesus, even at great cost, and they respond publicly. And so the last line that Luke writes in his account, it summarized the result of their testimony because their testimony was powerful. These people who had experienced true life in Jesus Christ, they had a powerful testimony and it was a powerful testimony because their lives were different and people could see that they were willing to count the cost and that they were serious about living for Jesus. And I wonder if the same can be said of me and of all of us. But if we live like that and if we pursue Jesus wholeheartedly, I think we're going to have the same kind of testimony that Luke writes here in the last line of this passage. In verse 20, he says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What do we learn from all this? Well, we learn from Apollos that, you know, education and knowledge about God or even the ability to teach about Jesus is not enough. We have to know Jesus personally. We saw from the disciples we need the Holy Spirit to make us alive and fill us with His power. We're encouraged by seeing the power of the Holy Spirit work in the life of Paul. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me to pursue the Holy Spirit even more and to seek Him to be at work in my life so that I might, in some small way, be a testimony to His grace and His goodness. And I, I pray that God will work mighty things through, through us as well. Sons of Sceva, we learn that it's dangerous to use Jesus for our own ends and Jesus is to be honored in what we do, not just with our words, but how we live for Him. And then the example of these disciples who believed and responded is compelling, isn't it? They grew, they matured in Christ, they came, they confessed their sins, they, they gave up their old ways, they pursued a costly path of following Jesus, and maybe, maybe some of us have grown comfortable in God's calling us to repent and to turn from our old ways, to turn to Him again. Maybe some of us need to make costly sacrifices to renounce living for ourselves, to, to live for Christ out of worship, not to earn any favor. That's not what they were doing here. They weren't trying to impress God. What they were saying is, God, because, because you've given us new life, because you've had mercy on us, we're going to live for you in everything. And we want to be different because you've, you've made us a new creation, so let's stop living like we used to be and now live who you've called us to be. So maybe some of us need to make some of these kinds of sacrifices, renounce living for ourselves, live for Christ out of worship for what He's done. In our church, there's likely, and this morning there's likely some here who, have, who don't really know Jesus, who either know a lot about Him, like Apollos, or appear to be following Him and aren't. Or maybe some are just using the name of Jesus. Or maybe some even have heard of Jesus before today. And God's calling you to place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins because all of us have sinned against Him. And all of us need to be reconciled with God and there's only one way to do that and that's through placing our faith, our trust in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit and He will give all of us new life in Him. Maybe some of us used to believe or used to be wholehearted in our passion but maybe some have left their first love. It's, a, it's an area thing God wants to continue to work on in our church. It's not being distracted by other things, by 
Not being distracted by your home or where you live. Not being distracted by your preferences or desires. Not being distracted by seeking after the things of the world. Not being distracted by seeking after accolades or fame or fortune or whatever it is. Maybe some have left their first love this way, still living morally good lives, still believing in Jesus, but not experiencing life in Christ. If that's the case, I believe God wants to encourage you to, to repent and, and experience a renewing of your passion for Christ, return to Jesus as your first love, put things aside, confess that, and come to him, and he, and he will make, he'll make you new. He'll give you a renewed passion. doesn't mean you're not a believer, but it means that you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you need to have passion for Jesus again to recapture your first love. And maybe some are still hanging on to their old lifestyle here, going back to their old ways. Maybe some haven't completely broken ties with the past, and maybe some have grown comfortable and need to count the cost. Take up your cross and follow Jesus anew. Others of us just need to keep on believing. Maybe you've grown weary. We need to keep on believing, keep pursuing Jesus even more, continually seek to receive this empowering life of the Holy Spirit. And maybe God has for you to see the work of the Spirit because He wants you to have confidence that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that the same Spirit that dwelled in Jesus dwells now in you if you've placed your faith in Christ, and that He can give you new life, and He can give you the same Spirit as empowering the Spirit if you've maybe become dull. For all of us, we all desperately need to know Jesus personally, don't we? We all need His empowering Spirit. So together, let's seek Jesus. Let's seek the filling of His Spirit again today. Amen? If you go ahead and stand and ask uh, the band to come forward, we'll sing one last song together. As they do, as you're standing, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for showing us pictures of, of those in the past and that we can see You for ourselves here today. God, I pray for all those who don't know You that we would come to know You. Father, I pray that for those who have lost their passion for You, that You would give us renewed passion for Jesus to see that You are a God who continues to work and give life and to empower by Your Spirit. Father, I pray that we would have faith and hope in knowing You, Jesus. And that we would seek the infilling of Your Spirit. You empower us to live for you in Jesus' name. Amen.